I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 14, if you want to follow along there. Could I ask you to stand one more time as we read the word? 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are many. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply what, is pa- what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray together. Our Father, it is good to be in your house, worshiping with your people. We thank you for your word, for its instruction in our lives. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We thank you for freeing us from the body, from the bondage of slavery, Lord, slavery to sin. We thank you for Jesus Christ's body and blood that was broken and poured out for us to forgive our sins. Please be with Pastor Adam as he brings the word to us today, Lord. Pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to obey. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. A brief introductory comment um, as we get started this morning. Here at Redeemer uh, in church life, we're set up a little bit different uh, for various reasons, and you notice um, not everyone in here missed Sunday school. Um, There actually wasn't one this morning, right? So you're familiar with church life here at Redeemer. So we don't really have a context in Sunday school to cover certain things along the pathway that we need to cover. we don't have a Sunday evening service. Sometimes perhaps you attend a church or have attended a church in the past where there was a Sunday evening service, and that kind of facilitated some discussion between pastors and congregants and working through various theological pieces that are really important to the ministry. Also, during those times, you can have kind of other discussions regarding less important items, but there's a way to converse in more of a public setting, kind of in that Sunday evening format. There's one other piece to Redeemer Church life also. Sometimes there is a Wednesday evening uh, culture at a church where they meet uh, all collectively at the main building at the main campus. And during that time, oftentimes you'll have uh, pastors, uh, 
involve the congregation in discussions regarding certain theological topics that are, again, less formal than what is typically occurring during a preaching hour or a preaching event. Here at Redeemer, this is our time to be together for the week at the, what I don't know, I I wouldn't classify this as a campus, Um, what we'll say is the main building. Uh, Yeah, it's fair to call it a building. So this is where we collectively come together. And so um, it's a little bit different this morning because it's less formal in the way that I'm going to handle the text this morning and why we're asking you to thoughtfully consider the text with us in a way that is a little bit unique in what is uh, kind of creating an itch for you as you're working through the text with us this morning. What are some thoughts, concerns, or questions that you would have following? Again, maybe we do this in a different format. This is our very first time in uh, six years of ministry that we have done this. So, yet it is uh, appropriate we have, we have considered. So, I would like to kind of begin with a, a little bit of a unique introduction, as if I haven't begun already a bit unique in my introduction, if I could uh, continue the uniqueness for a moment, and then we'll, we'll get into the text at hand so that we can kind of be together on the same page considering the Lord's table. In pastoral ministry, again, this being a little bit more informal uh, as those, if you're visiting Redeemer for the first time, I think you've got the idea, lest I continue to repeat. It's a little bit unique this morning. So I speak as one in pastoral ministry, but pastoral ministry does require continued thought and growth in the efforts of biblical and theological understanding. I think congregants and those who are members expect that of their pastors to continue reading the text, continue thinking, continuing thoughtfully, with regards to growth in biblical and theological understanding. Just because you graduate seminary at some point in time. Seminary, I don't know if that's cliche, but at some point it does, as many of you graduate students here, uh, where you really cut your teeth and really get sharper and more thoughtful is at your place of employment, at your place of greatest growth, is that time where you're working consistently at the science and many of you, the art of what you do. So it is with pastoral ministry that there is an expectation and there is a call from those who are in the ministry of the Word. They are called of the Lord to think about, work through, evaluate, meditate upon, prayerfully consider, and apply the text of Holy Scripture. This is the work of pastoral ministry for whatever it has become in our culture at this time, largely in Protestantism or evangelicalism, whatever it is, this is what it is supposed to be. And that is, they evaluate, meditate upon, prayerfully consider, and apply the text of Holy Scripture first, I think is appropriate and clear, is to themselves. They think about the text. That's what is involved in pastoral ministry. Thinking and applying the text to themselves first, And then secondly, to those who are under their care. This continued consideration of the text, this, hopefully, growth in maturity, means that there will be times in pastoral theological ministry where previous conclusions, applications, insights gleaned 
grow in their maturity over time. What was at one time perhaps not as significant grows with maturity to be more significant. Sometimes when you come out and the only thing that matters is this, you find out, I don't know, a few years later, that really didn't matter all so much. And you're ready to kill everybody that came to your church over it. Well, that's it. This is all that matters. And you find out over time, wow, that really didn't matter so much. But why is this continued examination of the text critical to pastoral ministry, to the health and life of Redeemer, that we continue to think on the text of Holy Scripture? Because we do so for greater conformity to the text itself in order to ensure that the pastors of Redeemer and those under their care are obediently following Christ according to the text of Scripture. That's why. It is that the ministry of the Word would be driven on by a desire to know and apply the Word, both to the pastors themselves and to those under their care, that the ministry, pulpit ministry everywhere within Christ's church, would be distinctly driven on by knowing and applying the text of Holy Scripture, not a spattering of mere ideas. There was a launch that we read about this week. I can't completely judge. I don't know exactly all the moving parts that are at work, but there was a call to come study God at work in the movies. Perhaps it's appropriate at a season to examine how God is at work through various methods of culture. But the pulpit ministry at a local church is to be driven on, not by mere ideas and speculative thoughts, not by novelties and cleverness, but it's to be driven on by knowing and applying the text of Holy Scripture. That is what God's people are to expect when they meet with God's people on Lord's Day. I'm coming to hear what God has said from the text of His own Word. That's my rightful expectation. And it is the duty of the ministers to provide for those who have come with that expectation what God has said from His Word. As we consider then the Word, the ministry of preaching and teaching God's Word, we would all affirm together, and we're all at different places in the way that we're affirming this, but I know that we do share together that it is of great benefit to all of us to grasp the big idea of any individual text. So it is that some of us then would say, well, I think that only grasping the big idea is necessary. If we could just come, look at the text, we can get the big idea and therein profit. We would agree, getting the big idea of a text is profitable, certainly. However, as you know, I would argue that furthermore, grasping the big idea is enhanced 
when the finer distinctions of that big idea are made plain. So that it isn't either we turn Redeemer or pulpit ministry in general into a seminary classroom. Great, if you even know what seminary is. Really, you don't need to. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's not that great of a place. So you either, in one hand, we turn it into that, and only finer distinctions matter. We labor and labor and labor and labor to constantly piece these little ideas, piece them all together, and notice how that conjunction's working, and this proposition relates only, and then way the ways in. And everyone's like, I am so tired when I came in here. Now I'm even more tired when I leave. Sometimes that happens. It does. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's vitally necessary. Sometimes it's not so necessary. And the pastor forgot what was thoughtful at one time to him became very unhelpful to someone else. That occurs, believe it or not. Yet the conviction remains the same. Understanding the big idea of a text or the entire big idea of Holy Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, understanding the big picture is so important, but it is further enhanced when the finer moving parts and pieces are made plain. So there is a great effort of, I know the little piece, and I know the big piece, and I found out that all of it together is an incredible force of helpfulness. In other words, what I'm introducing this morning is that we all together at Redeemer, pastors, elders, and congregants, members, and attendees, we all want to know the text. Truly knowing the text means also understanding its rightful applications and its implications for godly living. So if we just lived at the big idea, and we never got down to the distinctions, and we never then, even furthermore, we never applied the text, we would all walk out of here perhaps, some cynical, some fed, some strengthened, some annoyed, all of us tired. And we had missed the critical step of applying the text and its implications in lives of obedience that glorify Christ our king, we would be falling critically short. We want to know the text, which involves, again, knowing its rightful, comprehending, understanding its rightful applications and its implications for godly living. With this somewhat awkward and odd introduction, I am, believe it or not, excited to start a series this morning, a three-part series on the Lord's Supper. Why? Well, so that we might continue to thrive as a body of believers in the big picture of the Lord's table that we have so satisfied our souls with as we have come by faith and feasted on Christ already present in the life of Redeemer but to enhance furthermore our joy and the blessing held out to us in the Lord's table 
by grasping its rightful application and its rightful implications for godly living. If I could say, in short, the Lord's table matters. So, we broke from Hebrews just for a few weeks here because this is all coming home. The way that we're going to kind of look at the Lord's table is going to be in a three-week series with next week being off, and it's going to land itself. This plane, hopefully getting started taking off into the air now, we're kind of climbing, as it were, and then we're going to continue, and I trust we'll be able to land this plane with some measure of success at the Lord's table itself. Um, That would be about four weeks from now, if I got my math correct. So let's do that together. We begin with the Lord's table then this morning as the big idea of the Lord's Supper. If we were to consider the Lord's Supper with greater significance, as we are considering the text and maturing as we sit and we consider and we re-examine and we re-read and we reapply and we rethink the text of Holy Scripture in light of the Lord's Supper afresh, we would begin with the big idea, wouldn't we, right? We all want to know the big idea. This is where I would begin if we could just kind of begin layering an argument and then we're just going to continue to build it, continue to build it, and just think, what is the most foundational piece when you think in your mind, as we call it, the Lord's table? Have you thought already? We're going to discuss for a few weeks now the significance of the Lord's table. Perhaps the first question that would come to all of our minds is, why do we call it the Lord's table? Great. I'm glad we all have the first question that is the same and shared because I'm prepared to offer an answer. We call it the Lord's table because He is the Lord of the table. It is the Lord's Supper because He is the Lord of the Supper. Pretty straightforward, I think. But this is so significant because it immediately establishes the proper order between us, God's people, and Him, God Himself, at the table. Who is Lord of this event in the ordinary life of the church? Christ is the Lord of this table. What is its immediate implication for us as we come? How do we approach? What is the stewardship laid at our feet as we administer and share in this table belonging to the Lord? What is the immediate implication for us? It is this. We are not free to assume, rewrite, or ignore what the Lord says about His supper provided for His people. We are not free. If he be the Lord of the table, we are not free to assume, rewrite, or ignore what the Lord says regarding his supper provided for his people. What is the obligation upon us, God's people, as we look to the table of the Lord? What is our obligation as he is the Lord and we are his people? We come in humility to him in the table. We are obligated to learn, 
apply and obey what is foundationally taught regarding the supper. That is our obligation. It's not like we're having a unique three weeks because there's something neat to do. It is our obligation as God's people to learn, apply, and obey what is taught regarding the supper. Why are we learning? Why are we obeying? Because we're not the lords of the table. We come needy to the table. What is, my argument is uh, the first of three arguments we're going to make, or I don't know if I should even call them arguments. Hopefully they're just uh, uh, helpful uh, sermons regarding the seriousness and the application and the nature of the Lord's Supper. But my first sermon here was surrounding the issue of what is foundationally taught regarding the Lord's Supper. Then if it is that we have to learn what is foundationally taught, what is foundationally taught regarding the Lord's Supper? So that as we come, we come needy. We know that. We come to be fed. We know that. And we can't say how it's to occur. We hear from Him how it is to occur. So what is occurring in the Lord's Supper for us who come so, so needy? The answer of what is foundationally occurring or is being taught regarding the Lord's Supper is this. And then I hope to explain it for the next few minutes. We'll pause and we'll take a few questions and answers. There, I digress. Let me continue. What is foundationally taught and occurring in the Lord's Supper? It is this. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace for God's people. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace for God's people. I'll briefly define means of grace. I am sure, again, that some of this is rehearsed. This is something that we have uh, taught at Redeemer and have held within the life of Redeemer, but we're moving towards some additional movements with the Lord's Supper. And so this is one out of three that I am not reteaching or laying its foundation now as something unique or different, but just because it belongs to the three sermons that we're working on as it leads us to the application of the table I'm just seeking by remembrance to dust off the cover and go back over old ground. But it is what is foundationally taught regarding the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is a means of grace for God's people. Can I define for you the means of grace? When you say that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, what do you mean? What is a means of grace? It would be this, if I could define for you a means of grace, what I mean by saying the Lord's Supper is a means of grace to His people. I am defining means of grace this way. And this is for you as you come to partake. Have you stopped and thought about partaking? Is it perhaps that we think in our mind it is a reward for the strong? Or is it a provision to the weak? Or do we not think at all? We just come and it's part of church life and we do it. It is for you a means of grace. 
What do I mean by that? But that it is an ordinary element. Whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. It is an ordinary means. The Lord's table is an ordinary means. Whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. I'm already running out of time. So we're going to move forward into the argument at hand in the passage. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 10 as we look at it, as I am hopefully laying a foundation for us to build upon regarding He indeed is Lord of the Supper, and we are, as His people, learning what He is teaching us about the Supper. For we are not right to, we are not fit or allowed to rewrite, ignore, Or assume what is taught, but we must learn, apply, and obey what is taught. And what is taught, held out to God's people in the supper, is that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace to God's people. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. The text was read for you already, but if we are in verse 14, you see kind of the final thrust of Paul's argument here. And he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, Uh, maybe you've read this text before and you've thought in your mind, you thought, what is exactly going on that now he says the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ? And he's going on in the Lord's Supper right here. But you're thinking, wait a minute, why is he right here addressing the Lord's table? When the argument surrounding the Lord's table is an issue of idolatry. So here we're discussing idolatry. Look over in chapter 8, and again, this is developed a little bit differently this morning as is to the nature of what we're trying to describe this morning, that we would begin thinking afresh regarding the Lord's Supper and celebrate it four weeks from now with this strengthened understanding and maturity regarding the nature of the Lord's Supper. Verse 1 of chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols. Here's where, in your mind, you're marking out, Paul's beginning his argument. This is where I just read for you in verse 14 of chapter 10. It says, therefore, flee from idolatry. You're like, wait a minute. Yes, go back. 8, verse 1. Here's the thrust of his argumentation. Now, concerning food offered to idols, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols. And then it goes on through verse, or chapter 9 into chapter 10, where the conclusion is in verse 14 regarding this issue of idols flee from idolatry. So the context that teaches us about the nature of the Lord's Supper itself is an issue of idolatry. Now, how is idolatry manifesting itself in this setting? Again, briefly consider, we're learning about the nature of the Lord's Supper in the context of idolatry. What is going on here? What is at work? Well, as he addresses this issue of idolatry, there are some believers here in Corinth, if we were to go through the argumentation of chapter 8, 9, and 10, there are some believers continuing to indulge in idolatrous and sacrificial feasts. Now, they're participating in them. They're believers They identify God as their King, Christ, their Lord. They're believers, at least outwardly professing to believe, and yet they are continuing to indulge in sacrificial feasts unto other gods or unknown gods, pagan idols. They are participating at some level in these events. 
Paul is calling them to repent, to stop with this. And the way that he does it is through preaching on the Lord's table. We're going to build the connection as to why. Verse 7, notice in chapter 10, verse 7, as he describes this issue with Israel of the Old Covenant, as he's building the connection between what occurred in our forefathers in redemptive history concerning eating and drinking and idolatry, and he'll build the case for our eating and drinking as to sacraments. In verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, he is describing here this golden calf incident where Israel played the part of sacrilege. They, 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 they entered into this idolatrous event and then that necessary or, or uh, I guess just uh, consequential appendages, I don't know, so whatever the events are that surround this worship are described here is when you're having this sacrificial worship, appendages that come along are singing, eating, dancing, drinking, so on and so forth. This atmosphere goes along with sacrificial feasts. It occurred with Israel in the Old Covenant. Paul is telling the believers not to engage in these events. The concern is why. Why is he not wanting them to engage in these events? Why not? Don't be idolaters as some of them were. Don't participate in these events as some of them did, as is clearly spelled out in sitting down to eat and drinking and rising up to play. All the cultic activity. Don't do this. Why not? Because there is a relational union. There is an experiential fellowship occurring with the object of your worship. Why can we not participate in these things? Because there is a relational union taking place. An experiential fellowship occurring between you and the object of your worship. Again, look at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So right there, you're asking yourself the question of the text. So he's saying that there are not actual occurrences here of real demons and real other gods. So they cannot be participating in a union with them. They cannot be experientially united to these demons and these gods because Paul's saying they're not even actually present. Paul is saying that there is, where there is cultic intent, that these demons do exist, these gods do exist, that the one participating in the event itself is acknowledging himself to be a worshiper of that deity, that he is. Whether the deity is there, it's not. Whether the food is truly like inherently tainted, it isn't. Is that what I'm implying? No, in no way. But the intent is that they do exist. 
And that this food is a union, is a sharing in the object of our worship. Whether it's real or not, the intent, the cultic intent is there. That they are there, that they are being worshipped. And Paul's saying, I do not want you to participate, experience union, experience fellowship with the object of their worship. But it's not real. Its intent is. That is, if we could join with Calvin here just briefly as I wind down my argument, he confesses, this is um, Calvin speaking on this text of idol worship. He says, the worshiper confesses that an idol is something. That is, the design of the superstitious and condemnable service is an inference that all who connect themselves with these events associate themselves in the actual pollution of idolatry. Why? You ask, perhaps, why are they choosing to do this? Why are the Corinthian believers, why are they getting involved? Perhaps if we look from 8 to 10, we look at the entire book of 1 Corinthians, perhaps the reason why they're getting involved, uh, it's hard to say, perhaps it is naivety. Again, thinking that I can participate in these events since I'm wiser than what's really going on here. I acknowledge what's really in play and I'm not really doing this. I'm not really intending to do that. Perhaps it's some naivety present in the community about the significance of cultic meals. Perhaps it's just straight, direct disobedience and a participation of desiring to worship other gods, proving to be an unbelief. Not exactly sure But what we are sure of is that Paul now states his correction to this naivety or to this disobedience. And the correction is this, and this is what we're getting at regarding the Lord's table as I wind down my time. The correction is this. Paul clarifies, as I will read for you in just a moment, Paul clarifies that cultic eating, that is ceremonial eating, sacrificial events, wherein there is an eating and a drinking, is a means of participating in an actual relationship, what we call communion, with that which is being acknowledged in the ceremonial meal. Thus he calls it idolatrous. Verse 14, my beloved, Flee from idolatry by participating. You are being united. You're sharing relationally in the object of your worship. You cannot just sit as neutral in cultic ceremony for the intent is enough to implicate. You are sharing By acknowledging you are sharing in the communion with devils. Thus, flee idolatry. Now, if you were to read this text, and perhaps you have, uh, chapter 8 through 11, and many of you would say, well, I remember reading this text, and really what I've done is I have um, fought other believers over Christian liberty from this passage. Um, uh, That was a joke about Christian liberty and how we usually handle it. Um, The issue is there about uh, um, 
how I've read this text before and how I've worked through this text before is not zeroing in on the nature of the Lord's Supper. I've been thinking a bit more about Christian liberty, right? Because in the text itself from 8, 9, 10, and 11, he is dealing with Christian liberty in the text. And so he deals with that and in light of that moves within the context of cultic ceremony that isn't like a free-for-all of liberty. What is the distinction then between what he's arguing for in Christian liberty and activities and meats offered to idols and considering your brother and considering the conscience of another? What is he engaging there and that he is moving back into now he's saying, don't be an idolater. I thought this issue was a Christian liberty issue. So am I an idolater by sharing in these meats that have been offered or am I only an idolater in a different way? Is my, is my conscience the freedom that I have to either be an idolater or not is idolatry a conscience issue let's clarify it's not it's not a liberty issue to be an idolater so we recognize already that there is an in and out argument that he is dealing with a broader conception of eating some of this meat and again this issue of what we call christian liberty driven on by conscience that is informed from scripture and yet there's a distinction here that again what is the distinction where you are performing idolatry functional idolatry, and you're not. You're exercising Christian liberty. What is the distinction here in the text? And it is intent of cultic ceremony. That is, in other words, we are free to eat, as the text will clarify. We are free to eat until it becomes a competing communion. We are free to eat, meat offered, by conscience sake, until it becomes a competing communion. Where do I find this in verse 28? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then in verse 24, he says, let the one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat marketplace without raising any question. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invite you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. See the distinction there? If someone says to you, this is clearly intended to be an offering unto the deity, there, there's the intent. See, eat it. It's of the Lord. It's from the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fruits thereof. Great. If someone says to you, cultic intent, this was offered particularly unto these means, then it's not a liberty issue at that point. It is an issue of thanks, but I can't. Within this context, then, there is the true nature of the Lord's table being made plain. I land this plain with you. What is the true nature? It is this argumentation against idolatry that Paul then clarifies the nature of the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. Let me read the text with you, beginning in verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. Do you see that? They were, there, there's the people being baptized. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For the drink from the rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. 
This is a nature of our food. It's physical, but it's spiritually feeding. Look in verse 14. Therefore, flee from idolatry. I speak as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing being united to our old covenant meal there in verses 1 through 5. Here Paul elaborates and the cup that we bless here in the Lord's table. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, eating is a means of participating in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. The cup, in other words, is no longer a common beverage when you take it by faith. The bread is no longer, maybe you're eating a piece of bread. At that moment, by faith, it is no longer a common piece of bread. But it is set apart for the spiritual nourishment of the soul. While it is a sign of his body and of his blood. This is how the warning then makes sense. I conclude with you this warning. Back to verse 19. What do I imply then? Food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons, not to God. It's not actually occurring. But I don't want you to be participants in union with demons. In other words, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Why can I not eat of both tables? If it's just elements, it's whoosh, drank it, whoosh, drank it. Nothing occurred. I didn't mean anything by it. Why can't I just physically drink two cups? Why can't I physically eat two pieces of bread? Why not? If that's all that it is, the physical element that I eat and I drink, there's nothing actually occurring in it. And why can't I just eat it? How would that provoke him to jealousy by simply eating two physical elements that have no spiritual significance? My conclusion, because to sit down at the table of the Lord is to receive food from him and through it enter into an actual and real communion with him. Correspondingly, anyone who takes part in pagan sacrificial meals enters into communion with demons. Therefore, the two activities are utterly incompatible. It is not just a cup. It is not just a piece of stale Italian bread. Having been set apart, it is food for your soul to feast upon. How then do I feast when I come? By faith. Our faith feasts on Christ and is nourished by Christ in the meal.
This is what it means that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our brief moment in your text this morning. We do want to know it. We do want to be obedient to it and apply it rightly to both ourselves and those who join with us. We thank you for the great means that you feed us with by this sacrament. In Christ's name, amen.